Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Today we are chatting with Brian Neal, who's the CEO of Blind Zebra. This was an amazingly fun conversation. It probably went a little bit too long, but uh, I had a ton of questions for Brian about sales. Uh, this is the sales episode. We spend a lot of time talking about B2B sales, different tools, frameworks, a little bit on whiskey and some other fun stuff. It was just a super fun conversation. I am definitely going to have to have Brian on again at some point in the future. So please enjoy that. If you haven't subscribed to Startup Competitors, please do that and leave us a review. It would mean a lot to us to read your comments, hear what's working, hear what's not working. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. Welcome to the show. Today, we're sitting down with Brian Neal, who's the CEO of Blind Zebra. Brian, welcome. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here, man. All right. Let's start with a quick overview of Blind Zebra and what you and the team do. We are a sales training and sales coaching firm headquartered in Indianapolis, Indiana. June 3rd will be 23 years in the business. And for the vast majority of that time, it's just been me driving around in my car from client to client, training and coaching salespeople on um, both their, or all three, I should say, their thinking, their action, and their language. And over those years, I've uh, put together a format and a framework where I've borrowed things and learned things and put my own spin on it, uh, predominantly in the B2B space. And um, obviously, uh, over those years, I've seen a lot of different businesses and here of late have really been drawn to the technology scene and the whole process, not just around SaaS itself, but even around the the process of sales uh, in general with using technology and processes and systems to measure things. It's been really cool. So we are in, after 20 years, I decided it's time to scale this thing. It took that long to figure that out. So <laughs> I, uh, I my, uh, hired my wife first in June. So she came and joined me. She was actually vice president of client success at a company called Perk here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Oh uh, yeah. We know those guys. And had a great run. She was, she was with Perk for, um, she had two showings there. She was there for like nine or 10 years and left for a while and then came back as VP of client success and built really that function up at their company. She joined us and she's going to run all of our uh, client success and our inside sales team. And then we've got a couple operational people and also plucked a fellow uh, former person also uh, for marketing. And so we released some space and now we're a big kid company. I love it. Keep going on uh, some of the current status of Blind Zebra. Any other stats you can share, whether that's you know customers, revenue, funding, if you have any outside funding, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, sure. So we've been uh, bootstrapped through my checking account the whole way up. Um, it's really been um, more of a job than a business. If you read business books and scale and things like that, they'll talk about the... There's a book called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. I'm sure you've heard oh, yeah. of. And I, I'm an I'm a absolute recovering Michael Gerber person, E-Myth person, where I didn't really own a business. I owned a job. 
but it was really fulfilling. It still is very fulfilling. Pays me very nicely. You know, our revenues are over uh, just over seven figures now. And, you know, with just me and my truck, that's not a bad, bad life. Very fulfilling, great income. But, you know, I thought, you know, at some point we need to, we, we need to scale. We've got, we've got the digital environment now between video and audio and podcasting and texting. There's just no reason not to scale. So we've got some pretty aggressive uh, goals uh, essentially to get to 5 million in revenue in three years. Um, and then aggressive past that, you know, on the big, on the big plan to get um, up to 20 million in the future. So. Hell yeah. Love it. So 20 years just by yourself with a truck. Yes. To, to make that pivot to say, we're going to get 5 million in three years and then 20 million after that. What's the change? Like why? Yeah. I, um, part of it's getting out of my own way, to be honest. Um, I had always, uh, held on to this ideal that it's just me. I'm a single shingle on purpose. I don't want employees. I don't want all the things that come along with it. I don't want that extra responsibility. I love my clients. I love my gig. My life's pretty easy. And, uh, I don't know if you know, or the listeners might be intrigued to hear that I have a side hustle, which is not really a side hustle anymore. It's a second full-time job. I'm also an NFL referee. And so when you, I've been refereeing football for 33 years. When you get to the level of anything at that level, like the National Football League, where everyone's the best, it's this high achievement thing. It really gets you thinking. I'm like, you know, there are a lot of people that thought I could never get to the NFL. Now, I always did, and I didn't really know how to do it. And I worked my butt off and got lucky and everything else and got there. And I thought, why can't I do the same thing with my business? The only thing that's in the way is the, the choice that I've made. I, I decided when I was 19 that I, after I fell in love with football refereeing, that I wanted to be in the NFL. And, you know, it was when I was 47 that I decided I think I want to scale my business up <laughs> because I can. Why not? I mean, it's just it, it's literally like what changed, like a, just a, a mental shift in my mind. I'm like, you know, well, why wouldn't I try to do this? Uh, we've got great gifts to share with people. We have the ability to um, you know replicate ourselves digitally these days. And there's no reason not to try. So mostly getting out of my own way, which I think a lot of founders and entrepreneurs can hopefully have a little grace for and a little little compassion for that they've been oh, on the yeah. same boat, you know. Totally. And and then let let's rewind the clock a little bit more. How'd you get into sales and and then sales training? Talk to me about that. Yeah, of course. So I was a self uh, described student activities geek from the time I was in fifth grade through high school. I was in every student government, president of my class, captains of this and that, and I just did everything there was to do carried that on through college. Uh, those of your listeners who are familiar with Indiana University's Dance Marathon, which is a really big fun student fundraiser down at IU. I was one of the original founders of that thing. Me and two other women started that from a piece of paper. So personal development and learning and this growth mindset were always a thing. Well, how I got into sales was that I sucked at everything else. I, I just couldn't. I was terrible at finance. I hated accounting. Operations was boring. And sales was where I landed. And so I went to work for Procter & Gamble. And P&G is a wonderful, wonderful place to work. They have wonderful training, great support, really smart people. But I just couldn't get excited about selling diapers and toilet paper. It just wasn't, you know, like getting out of bed. I'm like, God, I can't wait to go make a sales pitch today for uh, Folgers Coffee. You know, just in the, that, that <laughs> business just wasn't my thing. And so, but I fell in love with the learning and the training development. So I did a lot of volunteering while I was at P&G to write and deliver sales coaching and sales training. Uh, I left after five years. 
I always wanted to own my own business. And so me and a buddy of mine in 1996 started my first business called Cleaning Solutions, which is an environmentally friendly cleaning equipment and supply distribution company. All of our products were environmentally friendly, which is a great idea in 2020. It is a horrible idea in 1996. No one gave a crap about the environment. <laughs> it was way overpriced. It was a deal. So it took about 18 months for me to lose all of my money and then some go into severe debt, almost bankrupt, not quite, which a lot of entrepreneurs also can relate to. And I said, okay, now I'm broke. What do I want to do? I went back to what I love. I love growth. I love selling. And so someone said, hey, a friend of mine's in the sales training, sales coaching business. Uh, his name is Bill Kasky. And I got introduced to Bill, who's an Indianapolis native here who'd been in the sales training business about eight years at that point. And he invited me to join and been in it ever since. That's awesome. All right. Talk a little bit about, well, well maybe early on, you said that you've developed a little bit of a framework for, for the sales training, uh, or maybe that's just a, the sales program. Talk a little bit about that. How do you outline a, either the process or an engagement with the client? Yeah, I love that. Um, as I was taught to sell at, at PNG. Everything that I was taught was tactical. It was all external. So I was taught what to say and I was taught what to do. And everything that I was taught to say and to do was completely out of alignment with who I was as a person and how I believed and how I operated. But I played along for five years very uncomfortably with lots of anxiety and lots of unhappiness because I wasn't being my true self. I was, it wasn't how I wanted to approach other human beings about business. So when I left, uh, I tried the same thing in my, my business that I started, Cleaning Solutions, and failed there. And I said, something's missing here. So when I met Bill, he was the first one to introduce me to this, to this mental aspect of selling and really got my wheels turning about, yeah, this is really more about the energy that we have inside before it's about our tactics and our language, our actions and our words. And so over the years, um, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student of, of personal and human development, and I, I listen and watch people. Wayne Dyer is my favorite uh, guru guy that I follow and listen to. And so I just started to put together a framework where people could say, okay, I can teach people all day what to do and what to say, but if I teach them how to think they're going to be way, way, way better off down the road. And if I teach them a really good, solid foundation of how to think, the actions and the words that they head out to the market with really become very, very natural and very uh, easy with no pressure on them or the prospect. So every all my clients know and your listeners now know my framework is super simple. I'm from Evansville, Indiana. I say, we, you know, we're simple people down there close to Kentucky. <laughs> it's part of the deal, you know, and my framework is very easy. It's think, do, say think, do, say. And then I have components under each of those. I have eight elements under the thinking column that are um, f philosophical in nature or beliefs. An example would be the very f the very first one is, is the um, concept of abundance of a marketplace. Abundance is the first element under the thinking column. So all my clients know that we have a fundamental belief that our markets are massively abundant. There's lots out there. Things always change. There's constant opportunity constant issues and problems that um, our pr prospects and customers have, they're everywhere. And, that, and then it leads to number two, which is detachment. And number three, which is intent or intention, where I teach people to have the energy of not selling, the energy of helping. And I teach people as, as best I can how to take these eight elements in this thinking column and internalize them. A lot of my clients call it their DNA, their sales DNA. And once you have the sales DNA in place and it's cultural within your business, and it's then injected the DNAs in the salespeople, the language and the words become very, very natural. 
so that seems like that could be a, a hard thing for everybody to adapt to <laughs> yes. and internalize. Yes. So the, the thing I'm trying gracefully to ask is how often do people fail at at uh, changing their sales DNA? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So I'll give you the Zen answer. I, I don't really think about it as pass or fail. I kind of think of it, uh, I'm sounding so deep. I'm sitting out in my backyard and the sun's out. I'm like all philosophical. Uh, I really, which is funny because I'm actually really a scoreboard, go get them deal junkie guy in my heart. Um, it, but really, it's really about continual development and improvement. And more than anything, it's not about embracing those things and doing them all the time. It's about self-awareness about recognizing in myself where I have attachments where I shouldn't have. That's one of my things is detachment where my intention is off. And if I have self-awareness around it, I can get coaching. So my clients come to me for coaching and they come to right. me and they say, Hey, Brian, man, I can't let this deal go. I've been chasing this thing so long and we were cooking and everything was great. And I sent contracts over with via DocuSign or whatever. And they've gone dark on me and I, I can't let it go. And I've tried, I've called them 15 times and they won't return my call and I can't let it go. So there's, for, I have to fix the inside first. I have to get them okay with it, that they're, they're not losing anything. They don't have anything yet. Something's gone on and we just have to release that. And then we can go and work on what the action in the language is. So when you ask, you know, do people fail at that? You know, I think the failure is the lack of self-awareness. If people are not self-aware, that becomes a problem for me. And I absolutely have clients like that without question. Love it. No matter what I say to him. Yeah. All right. So then uh, what's in the do category? Yeah, of course. I've um, the, the do category used to have four things. Now it only has two because I've combined three of the things into one thing. So the first is um, a personal business plan. So all of my clients use a template that I've, again, started in 2001 and just has gotten modified and modernized as we go. It's been my experience that most people left alone don't do a good job of doing their own personal business plan. They're okay at setting goals. They're definitely okay at you know agreeing to the goals that are given to them by their owner, their founder, their CEO, what have you. But they, they, they tend to miss on putting their own spin on their own goals. And so I have this template personal business plan. All of my clients are required to fill it out. It's a six-month plan on purpose. So we reset every uh, June, July, and every Jan, December. That's that's in case we either tank the year or we blow the year up. So we don't get too comfy if we blow it up and we don't you know, think we're worthless and shameful and all that jazz when we, when we miss. And it puts down both of my outcome goals, my wishes and things. But more importantly, it puts down a list of behaviors that I set out to accomplish on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And then all of my clients then get paired up with accountability people and those accountability partners then get together uh, at minimum once a month. I prefer every other week. And they literally just review their business plans and updates on how they're going. And it's intended to be a commitment to yourself. So this is not something I have people hand in to their me or their boss. Are those accountability people blind zebra employees or are those accountability people peers? Yeah, they're, they're peers. What I'll typically give people the option because it needs to work for them. I really want to, this is kind of a teacher person to fish sort of deal. They either go internal with their company and their sales team, or they'll go um, internal with their company's small group. So there could be three or four people in an accountability group, or they'll go external to their company with just a friend who's kind of into things like this, you know, and says, you know, has another friend who's in sales and says, hey, you want to do this with me? And they do it. I personally don't serve as the accountability partner other than there's one program that I run that's public 
called Training Camp that, that meets here live in Indianapolis. That group we do serve as the accountability check-in. We read accountability uh, commitments uh, at every meeting. People self-report those through our Slack channel, and then we read them back. And it's 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 my version of public shaming. It's not what it's meant to be, but that's what it is. <laughs> it's literally, so Mike, you said you were going to go have this conversation with this investor. And in front of the group, I just say, Mike, did you have that conversation? And you go, nope. I go, okay, that's all I got to do. I don't have to say anything or shun you or shine a light on you. But odds, we all know this, you know, exercise is the biggest, uh, you know, evidence of that. We all know if we have a workout buddy, our odds go up. You know, if you're married, you're trying to eat healthy. It's a lot easier if both of you are doing it together than one. Yep. Love it. Okay. So that... What was the second item? Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Second item in the doing column is LinkedIn. I've actually separated LinkedIn. That's a bit of a... Shenanigans. Yeah, I know. (laughs) You know, it's just my favorite tool. And I know people, you know, when it's like, well, what if LinkedIn goes away? I'm like, well, there's we have bigger problems, right? I just am a big fan of the power of the connection of LinkedIn when used properly, when used to, to feed the network and to give and to share and to learn and to connect others. The return, you know, is is monumental, and I don't worry about the return. It's free of strings, um, but I just don't think there's a better tool. There's not a better tool for research to understand people, um, learn about people, get, give get knowledge for myself. I'm a huge fan. Interesting. So then, is is a part of that due then just having a developing a cadence around posting and interacting on LinkedIn? Is is that? Absolutely. That's what it okay. is. And I do I do lot, lots of training, real specific tactical training because it's a do thing. Uh, and I'll always do it live and I'll actually demonstrate for my on behalf of my clients. I just did this in Atlanta for my my biggest, longest client, client I've been with for 15 years. You know, they're still a little, little behind the curve on uh, LinkedIn. So and I was in Atlanta and I said, okay, give me give me someone you're prospecting. They said, I'm trying to get a hold of someone at Central, the the United Way of Central Tennessee, a C-level person, United Way, Central Tennessee. I'm like, okay. Went in my LinkedIn, like started snooping around. About five minutes, I found a really, really warm connection, a woman named Raquel Richardson. I don't know if you know Raquel, a local Indianapolis uh, tech person and great sale, great connector. And she knew the CIO there and I got connected, meeting, done. And I only I only demonstrate that for people because I was an early adopter to LinkedIn. And if you use it that way, it, you just don't know, you know, where it's going to lead you. It's just fishing. It, it, I guarantee you, you won't catch a fish if your line's not in the water. Guaranteed. <laughs> but, but, so your line's got to be in the water. And the more lines, the the you know more odds. Um, but you're still going to come up dry sometimes. And that's, right. that's what it is. All right. And then what's under say? Yeah, say we've got eight things, too many to go through all of them. These are language components. So what I did here was I thought, okay, can we, what are the sections or the components of language that people can use? And I'm, I'm really big on framework. And this is, I know, and in, in a lot of your, for your listeners, for the founders and the salespeople and some of the SaaS organizations you work with, you know, there's really specific cadence, very specific scripting. I'm a bigger fan of a, a word or a language framework that someone can put their own voice into than an act, an absolute follow script. And so these language tools are meant to create framework for people to put their own um, language into their own personality. So an example would be one of my language components is context setting and contextualizing a question, contextualizing a conversation, letting someone know what's going to happen. You did a wonderful job setting context before we, you know, pressed record here saying, here's what's going to happen. You gave me kind of the speech. It was wonderful. So now I'm safe versus like, okay, here we go. Click, you know, and now we're rolling. 
So I felt really safe. It was really great what you did. So that would be an example of context setting. And that's your voice. And if I went on, you know, maybe another podcast or if I talked to someone else, maybe at developer town, they may have a different version of the same idea. So that's an example of one. A second example would be story. This is the uh, old school proverbial elevator speech, 30 second commercial value prop. It's got a whole bunch of names. I spent a day with a storytelling coach named Bo Eason out at his house in California who taught me one, how to find my own story in a much more um, compelling manner, but also how to teach others to pull their stories out. And so I work really hard to have my clients teach and talk in story versus teach and talk in feature function, feature benefit, stuff like that. So... I'm sorry. I've already moved on to the next thing in my head. That was awesome, by the way. Uh, so, so think, do, say that I love it. I, I, I often tell the the story. Uh, well, I'd say often. I think I've said it like three times. There's, <laughs> I've I've done a hundred and seventeen. You might be one seventeen, one hundred and seventeen podcasts, which I know you've done like a thousand at this point. But, <laughs> Not quite. Uh, f- Almost for for. For me, 117, at like based on where I started, I, I never thought I'd make it this far. So I've done 117 of these. And out of 117 podcasts, I've only gotten off the call once and and just, you know, f- turned off the microphones and said, Hey, how do I sign up as a user of your software? <laughs> yeah. And even already after uh, after that short script, I, I wonder if uh, you and I are going to be talking after this about how we can have you help out a couple of, a couple of our companies. Well, always talk. Well, the good thing is, you know, we're across the parking lot, so that helps. <laughs> I know that that does help. So For then, sure. okay. So switching gears, you're you know you're you're seven figures now. You want to grow the business to to three million? No, five million in three years. How are you going to do that? What needs to change in your business to to affect that outcome? Yeah, that's a, such a good question. I'm so glad you asked because I need this for myself. I need to hear myself saying these things because I'm still drawn to that. Boy, it sure was nice when it was just me. It sure was easy. I actually just am staring at a whiteboard. We just left a meeting talking about how to, how to retool our, our product. So the first thing that's changing is our product offering. In, in the midst of all of uh, the virus stuff that's going on or has gone on and Maybe we'll continue to go on. Who knows? Um, we've all been forced behind the computer into Zoom land, which has been you know, difficult and uh, enlightening at the same time. And one of the things I realized is I can actually create a pretty decent experience on a Zoom call with people. And it can be pretty close to the in-room thing. So the first thing we said is we can offer someone a very, very low barrier to entry cost-wise, a really great experience with very tactical, useful advice that still creates the community we have in our live programs here in Indianapolis via Zoom. So the first thing was changing product. That's number one. In the product change, we actually shifted for the first time. And for the, the whole time I've done this, I've never been B2C. I've always been B2B. This now offering, it's actually going to be called Minicamp because back, you know, my blind zebra, if your listeners have caught on to that, the refereeing thing, get it, blind zebra, the black and white stripes zebra. <laughs> That's it. Um, I try to keep things, even if, if you're not a sports fan, it doesn't matter. It's just how we brand things, you know, but so Minicamp is going to be the new product offering. And Minicamp, uh, we literally are just about to launch it. We don't have it fully baked out yet. It's probably going to have a price point under 50 bucks a month for a person to join a Zoom call a couple times a month with a bunch of other uh, B2B salespeople or B2C salespeople for that matter, and get a live, good, solid, ongoing tactical coaching and access to us and our content. So that was the first shift to product is number one. Uh, And then the second shift is going to be how we uh, both market and sell Blind Zebra. So 
you know, when I first started when I was 27 years old in 1997, I, you know, it was networking and all the young bucks were trying to, you know, do little meetups. We didn't have the internet back then. I had to cold call out of the, we have this uh, publication in Indianapolis called the IBJ, the Indianapolis Business Journal. They gave, they have a big book. Uh, where they, you could buy for like oh, yeah. 300 bucks. And yeah, the I just literally, lists. the book of lists. Yep. And then uh, they had this other, this like, you know, this book with all the information. I would just go down the list and literally phone call people and just try to cold call. It was, it was just brutal. So now um, we have so many tools at our disposal. Now we can actually, you know, sell remotely and market. So the second thing that changes for us is our sales and marketing strategy, um, which we've never done any marketing at all. Um, I've always done everything. Again, I just outlasted everybody doing it for 23 years or so. So everything's come from referral, connection, networking. You know, and people are like, well, you got a lot of connections. Like, I'm just old. Like, it, you know, wait till you get my age. You're going to have a lot of connections in town, too. You know, all the people listening that are salespeople, they're all going to be the CEOs when they're 40, 45, 50. It just happens, you know. And so that that has to change. And so we've hired uh, personnel to help us with that change strategy. And I just have to keep telling myself that that's what I have to do. Because I don't know about some of the founders you, you, you talk to and interact with, but sometimes I have such a pull back to the old way or to the simpler times. And I, I just yep. really, I'm glad you asked the question because I need to keep hearing myself say that, that we're building a company now. We're past having a job. So then... Fast forward for me a little bit. Is there another big pivot to go from five to twenty-five? Yeah, I think what what happens then. We we also did um, concurrently with this move to this B two C um, and this kind of small dollar ring where we can literally have thousands of people, very similar to a, a really inexpensive SaaS model. We can have a what I call like a think of like a semi custom home, kind of a mid tier price point where the room is more intimate. So these rooms then would be so. Uh, the mini camp is going to be kind of carte blanche, maybe 150 people on a call, 200, very broad, like a big lecture hall. If I went to Indiana University, a big, huge lecture halls of 200 kids, maybe like that, right? Then you get into a more intimate setting with a higher price point, $150 a month as a fee. And you're in, you're in groups, you're in pods of 20 people, again, interacting on a regular basis every other week. And you're getting to know the people and the peers in your group. And you're getting more one-on-one -on -one coaching with me. In addition to that, I just almost completed. I've got one more session to complete a certification of the first ever. I've got 10 what will be here in a few weeks certified blind zebra coaches, and they will all be able to deliver the blind zebra model. So now I've got a, a, a scalable business. Now I've got a sales and marketing machine that can put people into rooms. I have certified coaches that can coach those rooms and, you know, I can pray that it doesn't fall apart. I don't know. <laughs> but that's that if you answer the how do we get to 5, you know, 5 to 10 down the road, that's how it that's how it works. Yeah. Love it. both sides of it. Yeah. Brian, do you guys have any swag that you give out for Blind Zebra? Oh, we see. I don't know if I'm allowed to give it out. We we do. We have wine glasses <laughs> and a uh, little and we have uh, what do you drink uh booze out of? Like a, uh, like a tumbler? Like a tumbler? Like, I think we have tumblers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's what are, what are on those? Blind Zebra, our logo. Oh, your logo? You get it etched you get it etched in it? Oh, yeah, yeah, or whatever. I don't know what they do if it's a sticker or etched in. They look really nice, yeah. Yeah, we have well, a little tumblers. If it's a sticker, that's kind of ghetto. Don't don't do that. <laughs> I don't even know Kelly did all that <laughs> shit. I'm like, "Ah, oh, whatever. Yeah, it looks great." All right. Well, that that's that's pretty cool. I've never heard that one before. And do you give those to customers or yeah, you Yeah, we just got them all, so I'm going to get in trouble for giving them away. 
because we're just now in this getting the swag mode you know we just got our logo touched up and redone but those are the first things that came in i'm like you know they're sitting there if someone wants to come by and grab them i'll give them a couple that'd be great awesome well if you need wine glasses tumblers or stickers to put on your wine glasses or tumblers you can uh, get those at our sponsor fuel merchandise group you can go to fuelmerchandisegroup.com mention startup competitors and you'll get 10 percent off your first order love it fuel merchandise go see them go as deep or as shallow as you want here i'd love to know a little bit about creating a blind zebra coach certification program what led you to that kind of idea and what was the process that that you put together to to be able to certify those folks so it was inspired by and i've been a i've been a, a coach e uh junkie my whole career also so i've been in uh i was in a, a organization called vistage that some of your listeners yep. may have heard of before i was in a vistage group for between 10 and 11 years and then i left there and went to um a group called strategic coach which is led by a gentleman named Dan Sullivan, who's from Canada, and he's been doing coaching for 30, 35 years. And his um, his core focus is to create a self-managing company for entrepreneurs, a self-managing company. So um, I spent two years in Dan's program. And through that process, I really got inspired to do the things we're talking about. And uh, I'm going to copy everything that Dan does. Because I, as I'm watching this work and I'm the student, I'm going, oh, my God, I can do this exact same thing that he's doing. <laughs> so that's where I really got the idea. I straight up stole it from Dan Sullivan. And what he does is he certifies his coaches are all former clients. They have to be. And so as it stands now, all of them, now I, I saved, there's one of my good friends who is one of my Dance Marathon co-founders, who's also a, a leadership coach here in Indianapolis named Jason Barnaby. He's the only non-client. The rest of them are all clients. Um, most of them have been with me. I think the newest one in that room has been with me for five years. And, and a few of them have been with me for between 10 and 15. So they've been students of what I teach and they've used it themselves to grow their own careers, their own incomes, their own companies. And the rule is to be a certified blind zebra coach, you have to stay employed in your regular day gig. So you have to be either a sales professional or a sales manager or VP of sales or an owner in order to be a blind zebra certified coach. I'm not looking to have people make this their full-time hustle. This is a side hustle. Love it. I still pay them. Um, the good thing is I always, it's really important to me that people do it, do what they teach. And so I do what I teach, try to as hard. I'm not perfect by any stretch, but I work really hard at that. And so I want my coaches to be in the game. I want them to be out there on the field, in the game, do, doing deals, talking to customers, screwing up, learning, so they can bring that back to the classroom and share it with other people. And so that's that's how I got to the idea of the of the of the of the coaching, and then the certification. Really, I had had a about six years ago had a um, instructional designer who was really great essentially just watch me put all of my content on a board for like three hours. And then she organized that in a learning format that also comes with a teacher's guide. And that was already done. I just hadn't done anything with it. And so I pulled that out, dusted it off, cleaned it up, modernized it. And then I used that as the, uh, as the guide to take the people through certification. They were familiar with the material intimately because they're users already. So that was an easy part. What they're not familiar with is how to teach and convey it to others. So that's really what the certification program was about, how to teach it. It's great. 
Who's the ideal customer for Blind Zebra going forward? Yeah, that's a great. That's changing. I, I, I don't know the answer as we move forward. I'll tell you. In the past, I have a framework. It's one of the frameworks I teach uh, called Ideal Client. And I have um, uh, uh, one, two, three, four, five, like kind of five elements on a grid. So if you think of a, a spreadsheet and you think of the columns, the columns go good, better, best. And then the rows are the elements, but there's a top row and a, a, a big top a group of, of elements and a bottom group of elements. The top group of elements is demographics. The bottoms is psychographics. Demographics are yeses and nos, ones and zeros, stuff that you know your group are, is very familiar with. And then the psychographics are the touchy feelies, the culture, the commitment to growth and learning, the open outside help stuff. So my ideal best client is a privately held business based in Indianapolis that has between five and twenty salespeople and revenues between five and fifty million. Um, that's either owned by an individual or a private equity firm. That's the demographic stuff. They're B2B. And then psychographically, they have, they're typically find themselves in or around uh, the best places to work list. They have really strong culture, real good, strong commitment to learning and growing their people. They're not know-it-alls. They're looking for outside help. And they have a growth-oriented culture that likes to keep track of things and scoreboard and, and high accountability. So that's the that's as it sits today. As we pivot into this B2C space, it's going to be a little bit different. It's really going to turn into anyone, anyone literally on the globe who's in a sales function, whether they're B2B, B2C, whether they live in Nova Scotia or Johannesburg or Indy. But they psychographically will have some similar elements. They'll have a, a grow culture. They'll want to invest in themselves. They're willing to learn new things. They're yearning for structure and process to help them, that sort of stuff. Two questions in that new world where your customer is the B2C customer, who do you think is going to pay for that training? Do you think it's going to be the individual salesperson themselves or do you think it will be their company? And then the follow-up question to that is, do you think it matters? Yeah, that's a great, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked this too. I love your opinion too, because we're really, we're going back and forth on this one. So I love you as I tell you the answer, go with fresh eyes. You say, here's what I think. So my first inclination is on Minicamp, it's B2C. The salesperson themselves will will pay 49 bucks a month to invest in themselves for two 45-minute meetings, access to a big library that's uh, that's housed by our friends at Lessonly local Indianapolis uh, company. I use Lessonly for my my content delivery. And then interactions along the way and little um, op- options for 911 to like call me on a deal and stuff like that. My hunch is people will pay for that. If they won't, then maybe they're not ready. Because I'm thinking if you're a salesperson, you probably have a decent income, 50 bucks a month. You know, I'm like, it's not a lot of money. You spend that much at Starbucks, you know, in three days. They probably spend that on their cable bill. Exactly. Yeah. To- exactly. Yes. Pick one. So at 49 bucks a month, I'm thinking, man, if, you, if that's too much for you, you, you know, you probably need to rethink the whole deal here. This middle group that's kind of a hybrid, um, we're going to do this middle group that's this 150 that I mentioned earlier also, I think. That one I'm actually thinking about, and I don't know how I police this. It's 150 bucks a month, but the salesperson has to pay 75 and the company pays 75 because I still want the salesperson to have some skin in the game. And that's going to be this more intimate group. You know what I mean? And I kind of want to, I don't want to get in complicated invoicing, but I, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to invoice the individual 150 bucks and it's up to them to get their boss to pay for the other half sort of thing, you know? So my gut instinct to that is that that's a, whether it actually works out in practice to, to function like that or not. Yeah. It's a, it's a killer sales pitch is, is, the head of the company, right? Because if my salesperson comes to me and says, 
look, I want to do this thing. I'm willing to pay for half of it. It's that important to me. There's pretty much no way I can say no to that. Yeah. That makes me feel good. At 75 bucks a month to, I, I, yeah. Right. Yeah, what kind of jerk is going to be like, well, (laughs) you're going to put your own skin in the game, but I I can't afford 75 bucks. (laughs) Right, right. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to make it like that. I'm glad you had that reaction. So we're one for one Uh, our market research. So I love it. Yeah, that's great. Okay. That's very good. Because we we've struggled because the our, our price point for local training camp is three hundred bucks per seat per month. That really needs sold to the owner. That's a decent, especially if you have two or three salespeople. All of a sudden, you know, especially some of your listeners are founders. They don't have the cash is is uh, you know really really sacred. So you know that becomes a thing really to think about a budget item and a consideration and you know all that jazz. I'm trying to make this like you said. If salesperson comes to their boss. And says, boss, I want to do this. Will you pay for half? And it's 75 bucks a month and it's a salesperson. I'm going to be like, heck yeah. Where do I sign? I know with other sales training programs, they often, there's often this kind of concept. And half of me thinks it's probably just from an upsell capability. And half of me thinks there's some truth to it, right? Like where the the program basically says, look, I can't, I can come in and just influence one of your salespeople and and maybe that's fine, but that's not what we want to do. We want to come in and work with your entire sales team and the manager because we need everybody working from the same playbook. Talk to me a little bit about that philosophy versus what you're doing. Because I mean, I'm sure you're open to having an entire sales team, but it doesn't sound like that's what you're selling. So what what's your reaction to that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's really the evolution of this business. Because I, you know, there's a, there are lots of them. I don't care talking about them either. So you've got Sandler's the biggest one. So the Sandler network where they're really, really great, their, their, their leverage is in, is in the franchise model where individuals buy a franchise and they own a Sandler group. And then that, but the way those franchisees tend to make money. It's just what you're saying. Let us come in for a really... And I do this. This is this is still 90% of my revenue is still this type of model. Big retainer, real heavy, high touch work with the whole sales team, doing all sorts of consulting with the owner and all sorts of things. And that works great. You make a wonderful living, like I said earlier, but it just doesn't scale. So the Sandler corporate can scale, but the people that own the Sandler fr- franchisees can only scale by adding more bodies. It's the only way to do it. And then you're kind of geographically restricted if that's your only delivery model. Right. So while that's been, that's also hard for me, I'll be very um, vulnerable on this one too. That's hard for me to let go of because there's part of me that feeds the inside that makes me feel needed and wanted and all that other jazz, you know, that these companies want to pay me to bring me in, you know, to help them with that. That feels really good. I'll lose some of that connection with this B2C thing. I know I will. And I'm really kind of working my way through that. Oh, it's going to be way more painful than you think. Oh, I can't. I can't. I don't think that's why I'm in denial still. I'm like, yeah, yeah we'll see. <laughs> I did independent consulting for 10 years where I basically oh. hung out, hung out my own shingle and, and did my own thing. And it wasn't until like, literally my, my first real job was developer town. And, uh, and it, it, it's, uh, it's, you're, you're about to go on a fun journey. I can't wait. I can't wait. And I'm going to call you for therapy. So there you go. I know where you live. <laughs> I'm going to have my own house in developer town. <laughs> my, my therapy, uh, my therapy includes a, a soft couch and some whiskey. So I'll we'll take fi- it. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Yeah. I'll take it. I just, uh, I just, uh, I've got, I'll have you, have you over. I, I, uh, just started on the whiskey for I've been red, big red wine people for a long time. And I'm like, I'm going to start learning about this whiskey business. So, oh yeah. Fun stuff. All right. So that, well, did I cut you off on answering the question about kind of other like sales 
the the concept of you have to work with the entire team versus the individual or, or you get no I, I don't think so no because i just i am like i said i may have been and or you know might again still be in denial that, that that's the best way to do it and i like that's just how it works um <laughs> I, I i have to believe that i can still have not as good of an influence but good enough influence if the salespeople are just remote and they're learning their own way that they're getting value they're saying man this you know this program is just so helpful to me in my own little patch of grass out here in idaho do you have any thoughts at all on the differences between selling product versus selling services hmm. and how it, particularly in a B2B context and whether or not that changes the training that needs to happen or is your focus so fundamental on like the you know I'm I'm thinking through some of the things you were you were walking down when you're in the think category that maybe it doesn't matter what what are your thoughts on that Yeah that's a really good question. I've never really, I know I've thought about it, but I've never thought about it like the way I'm thinking about it. Like you just asked me like, man, should it, yeah, should it be different? So I'll go, you know, top of the head gut answer when I get stumped like this. I'm like, okay, it shouldn't matter. It's the first thing I want to say. It shouldn't matter. And then I think about my clients and I think of the ones that sell a service and a thing and it does matter. And what's interesting is I'm talking out loud now. The risk, I think, in the people selling product is the product becomes the center of the show and not the client or the prospective client. I should, you know, the the customer, the product becomes the center of the show with a service that can happen. It's not as easy, though. It's so easy if someone's doing in the SaaS world, taking the, you know, predictable revenue model and boom, SDR sets appointment, AE comes in, discovery, demo, close. You know, it's such a machine. When I watch my own clients in the SaaS world, and I've had plenty of them, um, they're still heavy on the demo, you know? And when I listen to the demo, the demo is still so product-centric. And I just think we could just do better. And, I'm, and that word, the, the problem I have, the, you know, <laughs> predictable revenue, salesforce.com has some evidence that that works. So do lots <laughs> of other SaaS companies that have gone public and flipped it. So I'm sitting here going, wait, it could be better. And they're like, no. So... But I, but I do, I just think even from a, like the thing I teach about intention, I always want my intention to be to be helpful and lift others up and, you know, teach and learn and all that other stuff. And so if my demo does that, then it's great. If all my demo does is demo, you know, it's the other thing I always try to, I don't try to do this on purpose, but it scares people, you know, AI can, AI can replace a lot of the sales stuff. I really believe that salespeople that are listening, you got to be really careful that you don't lose the ability to critically think and manage a conversation and a human being. Because if we just stay in this kind of rote process, do this demo, AI can run a demo. If it's just a demo, well, it's just coming faster than any of us care to think about. I really, so that's a thing to think about. Oh, it's already happening. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, see, I'm, I'm sure in your world, you're seeing it already. Exactly. You can see, Ed, it's not AI by any stretch of the imagination yet, but you can see the outlines of it with tools like Costello and yes, yes, uh, and and others that are out there where they're basically building that framework that would allow for massive amounts of automation on top of it. I mean, you look at tools like Gong, where you can start parsing like like what is the winning script, just force feed it to people, and then eventually get rid of the people. Just, just exactly. force feed the script. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Especially when we're, you know, we're hiding when we're hiding behind email and everything. I've got a, a advertiser on our podcast, a place called chronologic.ai. And they, and I know there's another tool that does this too, but they can have a, an entire email exchange between what seems to be two humans. It's fully, you know, AI bot driven. 
that seems really real that can set an appointment, a sales appointment. Like just take the human totally out of the appointment setting, which a lot of salespeople are like, hey, man, let's do that. <laughs> you you yeah. got to watch it though. Cause a, I'm not sure I need you then. <laughs> so yeah, it's a good it discussion. It starts working its way up. Yep, totally. Uh, well, while we're on that topic, rattle off for me, and this is totally um, time sensitive because these will change over time. But right now, what are some of your favorite sales tools? Yeah, Gong, Gong, Gong. I, I, I just, I am such a huge fan of Gong right now. And I, I think they're just they're just getting started. I really do. And that mostly comes from my refereeing uh, slant. Uh, we have a phrase in football that the eye in the sky does not lie, which basically means when I get done roughing <laughs> a game, I pull the video and I don't care what I said I did. I have evidence of what I did. And I don't care what I think I saw. I see what was there, what really happened. Oh, I love and so that. Gong is the eye in the sky for salespeople. And there's just no better. T- I watch so much film of myself and have over the years, which is one of the reasons I think I got the good grace to get to the NFL because I spent so much time analyzing and trying to improve. Man, if, if your listeners are SaaS sales, I don't care if they're SaaS or not, if they're salespeople or if they're owners, they have to find their way into um, Gong. And I know there are some other competitors that are decent. I'm a fan there. Second, local. I'm a huge fan of co-video. The ability to connect with people via video and the acceptance of the world to digest video is booming and exponentially growing like we don't even know. And so to get out from the static email where tone is difficult and to have an, uh, some element of video in my email follow-up and that sort of thing, I think is really, really, um, really important. So co-video, I'm a huge fan uh, of theirs. And then my wife, who's also my business partner, is not here to say this, but I'll say it for her. She is a Salesforce.com junkie guru. I am one of those rogue cowboy people that hates to put anything into anything. And I know that's... Also known as a salesperson. (laughs) Exactly. Like that's about 98% of the salespeople on the earth. Why do I have to do this? What is this? Can you just do it? Can it do it? You know, all that lazy stuff. But boy, she's done it. She's a a Salesforce guru. Um, She was a power user uh, at her her job at Perk. And uh, someone we just hired is also a a Salesforce.com junkie. And now that I've seen it work live, you know, the power to drill down and and understand your funnel and understand wins and losses. When you couple that with things like Gong, put them together, it's really, really strong. So those would be my top three for right now. Nice. Uh, Perfect. All right. I've already kept you way too long. If people want to get in touch with you, learn more about Blind Zebra, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can send uh, email as one. So uh, it's Brian with a Y, B-R-Y-A-N at blind-zebra.com. Um, and you can even note in the subject line that I heard you on Mike Kelly's podcast or whatever, whatever they want to highlight there. And if they want to get together, if they're local in Indianapolis, I'm a big connector. I love to get together. I know right now a face-to-face isn't the way to do it, but I'll do a Zoom call with anyone uh, if they hear it through this podcast. So that's one way. I'd encourage everyone to check out the podcast that, that I've done for several years called the Advanced Selling Podcast. The Advanced Selling Podcast. And you can go to the App Store. You can go to advancedsellingpodcast.com. You can search any, anything, my name and podcast, you'll find it. It's it's everywhere. Um, and I'd love for everyone to LinkedIn. Brian with a Y and the last name is N-E-A-L-E uh, on LinkedIn. Those are the best ways. I, I love it. And I will uh, I'll have to pull down a couple of episodes of Advanced Selling and give it a listen. Please uh, do. Yeah. I, I suspect it's uh, something I'll see a lot of value in. Bro, we, we love to do it. And hopefully it's helpful to others. And kudos to you, man. The, the, um, 117 episodes. I can't, I'll, I'll, the main advice I always tell people podcasting is A, you got to start and then B, you have to continue. 
If you do those two things in podcasting, you're going to beat 99.9% of the people. You know, you you've you mentioned the scoreboard like several several times in this podcast, and I'm very competition driven. And yeah. the the only reason this podcast exists and has endured is because of uh, my deep seated competition with a, a guy named uh, Nick Wangler, and it kills him <laughs> that I started this, and it kills him uh, that it's still going strong and growing. And so I'll it. just keep doing it as long as he's upset. Hi, Nick. <laughs> I should say I had a Nick on my podcast too like still waiting for Nick to start his podcast you know that, Kelly's got uh, you know 117 episodes he's still thinking oh about it god that would be amazing alright All right. Uh, well Brian thank you so much for doing this I You're appreciate welcome. it thanks for having me appreciate it If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.